Welcome to Sacred Leadership. I am Sacred Tassias, leadership coach, author, medicine woman, and entrepreneur. And you found the podcast where conscious leaders discuss and explore topics around modern business, ancient wisdom and spirituality, personal development, and success strategies to help you bring more depth to your leadership and create the life and business of your dreams while serving humanity and the earth. Today's guest is a woman who taught me Vedic meditation and who first introduced me to the practice of studying Vedic philosophy. Both of these practices have been so supportive to me, so I am very excited to have her today in the podcast and be sharing her knowledge with you. Rachel Gross is a qualified teacher of Vedic meditation. She teaches and mentors students all around the world, sharing the ancient wisdom of Veda in a modern and relatable way. Her mission is to help people rediscover the truth and beauty of their own being so that they can be an expression of their inner nature as opposed to an expression of their stress. She continues to train extensively under the guidance of her teacher, Tom Knowles, and travels to India regularly to immerse herself in Vedic knowledge and culture, ensuring that her connection to the roots of this tradition stay pure and strong. In this episode, we spoke about many different, deep, amazing topics, some of them being the importance of having a daily practice, of course, Vedic meditation, the role of a guru in today's world, tapping into your inner guru, the concept of individuality versus universality, and how to cultivate humble pride as leaders of this world. This was such a deep and reaching conversation. I got so much from it, and I really hope that you do too. Keep on listening as we dive right into it. Rachel, thank you so much for making the time to be here in the show with me today. I'm very, very excited to have this conversation with you and share it with my listeners. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Sigrid. It's been a long time coming and I'm glad we finally found the time to do it. Yes, me too. So first of all, let's just go and dive right into it. But to put things into context for those who aren't familiar with the practice of Vedic meditation, what is Vedic meditation and what makes it different to other styles? I actually know a lot of people that would dare to say it's the best style. So tell us why. <laughs> I also know a lot of people who would say that it's the best style. And to get that out of the way right out front, the reason that a lot of people say it's the best style is because it is so easy. So most meditation styles that we hear about fall into one of two categories. They're either concentration techniques where we are using a lot of focus and we're using a lot of energy and a lot of our mental potential in concentrating on one thing. And then the second style that we often hear about is something called a contemplation technique, right? where there might be a way of being, right, a quality of being that we want to enhance within ourselves. And so we contemplate that, you know, what is it like to be more generous or what is it like to be more loving? And those styles work great because we know that what we put our attention on, that thing grows. 
Vedic meditation is quite different in that even though it's called meditation, technically what it is is a transcending technique. So to transcend means to step beyond where we're stepping beyond thought, we're stepping beyond our identification with our bodies, with all of the different stories we have about who we are and what we are. We step beyond our sensory perception and we transcend into, I guess the simplest way to explain it is that we get into the more subtle strata of the mind. So we allow the mind and the body to de-excite and get to a really deep level of rest. And the experience of that for us is that of transcendence, where we step beyond everything in the relative world that we know. And so that experience of transcending is very, very different from what we experience during a concentration meditation practice or a contemplation meditation practice. And so it's really easy. You get something called a mantra, which is a sound. It's individual to you. I got to stop you right there for a second. I got in the very bad habit. I find it very funny, but some people have gotten offended by that. When someone tells me they're a Vedic meditator, the first thing I ask them, it's like, cool, what's your mantra? <laughs> you should see people's face. <laughs> so I find it very funny, but I got a couple of people looking at me like, oh my goodness, like, doesn't she know you can't share your mantra? You I'm like, yes, mantra. I do. That's why it's funny. But <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was like, yes. <laughs> Did you want to ask me what my mantra was? <laughs> I am tempted, but I'll let you continue. <laughs> but what I love most about that, Sigrid, is that one of the outcomes of this style of meditation is that we learn how to relax. We learn how to relax and enjoy and let go and experience the fun of life, the lightheartedness of life, to not take things so seriously. Because in that experience of transcendence, we have that twice daily experience that there's so much more going on in the world than what we see and smell and taste and hear and touch when our eyes are open. And that repeated experience allows us to relax a little bit. And so I love that you ask people what their mantra is, <laughs> you know, in the spirit of that lightheartedness. But just to cap it off so that people don't feel like they were left hanging, you receive a mantra and it's personalized to you. And over the course of four days, about 90 minutes each day, you learn how to use that mantra and interact with that mantra in a really effortless way that it's what we call charm. It charms the mind into deeper and more subtle layers. And I know that charm is one of the things that you wanted to talk about. But yeah, in that really deep state, in that subtle state, it allows the body to rest. And in that deep state of rest, we start to release stress. And actually, it's that stress that's built up in the system that causes people to behave in all sorts of funky ways. So on top of being really easy, Vedic meditation is like a purification practice for us. And it allows us to unlock our true inner nature. Who wants to be an expression of stress? I don't know anybody who wants to be an expression of stress. And so it's a really simple practice that allows us to uncover those layers, peel back layer by layer, all of the stress that we've taken on since we've been alive. And it allows us to be more of an expression of that inner true nature, which I absolutely love. Mm, I love that. 
I love the practice. For those of you listening, Rachel was actually the person that initiated me into Vedic meditation. I was your first student, right? You were. You were my first student. Special bond. (laughs) So (laughs) this is something that I have been practicing for years. And I actually did so many different styles of meditation for years as well before I dove into Vedic meditation. And I agree that the feeling and the experience that I get from this practice is like nothing else. And I feel like the Vedic philosophy that we get to learn that comes with it and teacher share, and I personally read about it weekly. And that knowledge, it's such a perfect complementation to integrate the experiences that we may have during meditation and then in life. So I want to share a couple of questions that have been coming up for me, and I'd love to hear your Vedic perspective on them. One thing I've been reflecting a lot on in the past months is the fact that right now we are being asked to do it all alone together. I feel that this is the age of radical self-responsibility, where we are really all being asked to take full accountability for ourselves in the world. And I have also heard many shamans and sages say that the age of the guru is over Mm. and it is time to become our own guru. And I really love that because it forces people into self-responsibility and out of a lack of it. And what I've come to realize, or let's say belief, I could change my mind right here now, (laughs) is that subscribing to dogmas and pedestaling others as the carriers of all knowledge can be a form of avoiding self-responsibility. It's an easy way to avoid owning our power. However, you know, I'm always like considering both sides of everything. As a forever student that I am, I also think that everyone would benefit from having mentors and teachers they learn from. And we live in a world where we are conditioned by a deeply distorted society. So I think we actually need more wise role models that we can learn from. In saying that, I also think that it is the time to seek for answers within. These are unprecedented times and we are all navigating it for the first time together. All of it, everything that's happening. So I guess there's that. And I would love to hear (laughs) your take on this. What do you think the role of a guru in these modern times is? And if you think there is a need for us to do both, take radical self-responsibility and own our inner wisdom and power while being humble enough to remain a student of those who carry deep knowledge, how do we do that? Mm. This is a great question, Sigrid. <laughs> a great question. And in fact, there's like multiple questions in one question. So I'm going to do my best to address. I always ask like 53 <laughs> questions in one question. I know. And I feel like I'm always like, okay, just be patient. I'm going to answer every part of your question. Just bear with me. (laughs) All right. So the first thing I would say is that I heard you say repeatedly this idea of self-responsibility or radical self-responsibility. And the first question that I would ask is which self are we relying on? So if people are relying on their individuality, right? If they're leaning into the sense that I, Rachel, have all of the answers, or I, Sigrid, have all of the answers, and I'm going to lean on my small self for all of those answers, my experience of that is that not only can it lead to overwhelm, but it can lead to a lot of confusion and a lot of suffering. 
Mm. And misleading. Yeah, it can be very misleading. Yeah. If, however, we are leaning on big self, right? If we are going to have radical big S self responsibility, if we have a practice that connects us to the fact that we are totality from the Vedic perspective, there is a Sanskrit saying, aham brahmasmi, I am totality. And that doesn't mean that we are just the absolute field of pure consciousness, right? Everything that we are experiencing out here in the relative world is also true, but it's only half of the truth. The other half of the truth is that that pure transcendent field of bliss is with us in every moment. And if we have a practice that reminds us of the totality of that, then of course we can absolutely be radically self-responsible self-sufficient, but it's big S self. So that would be the first thing I would say, which leads to the second part of your question, right? This message that everything that we need is within and that the time of the great guru is over, which by the way, in some respects, I absolutely agree with that. And this sense that all of the answers, we need to start finding those answers and learning how to perceive those answers within ourselves. And I think that the thing that people are missing, so first is that guru is not just a person. Guru is anyone or anything in our lives that helps us to remove darkness from the path. And that can be a tree. That can be a situation that we witness with other people where we aren't even involved. That can be a family member. That can be a teacher. It simply depends on your definition of guru. But going back to what I said when we started, which was that the whole purpose of this practice is to bring us back to that naturalness and that simplicity and that innocence of human existence, that it is actually our bad habit of intellectualizing, right? That says that a guru or someone that we're going to put on a pedestal, right? Which is not the definition of a guru. Guru is expressive of a remover of darkness, And a remover of darkness can be inhabited in absolutely anything, right? So we need to start shifting our attitudes about that and maybe not being so touchy around it, right? You're talking to the touchy society. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about what is the purpose of a teacher or the purpose of, you can call it whatever you want, a mentor, a guru, a keeper of wisdom, an elder, right? However we want to call it. Those who have gone a little bit further in the path than we have. I think the danger when we look at them and we say, you are a guru, you're going to fix everything for me. That's not the purpose of the guru, right? The guru can point out, hey, you're a few steps behind me. When you turn that corner, watch out. There's a tree branch. Don't knock your head. And a great guru will point that out. Exactly. If they see you are pedestaling them. Yes. I've had shamans and teachers be like, hmm. Check yourself. <laughs> I am just your teacher. Do not, yeah. do not put me out there. Yeah, because the thing is that a true guru will want students or disciples or followers or clients, whatever we want to call them, to become capital S self-sufficient as quickly as possible. Every true carrier of wisdom that I have come into contact with, their desire is not only to pass along that knowledge for the benefit of those who are listening. But their hope is that those listening will take in the knowledge 
and learn it as quickly as possible, integrate it and embody it as quickly as possible. And dare I even say, surpass where the guru is, right? It is the great pride of a teacher to witness his or her student surpass where that teacher is. And I think that unfortunately, we see a lot today, people who maybe are sharing wisdom or are teaching from a different place, right? And so the term guru has kind of been sullied. We've seen people use that for their own advantages, whether that be financially or for their ego or sexually. We see a lot of a sort of inappropriate power wielding, I would say. It's more of a power struggle. And so that's part of the journey, right? That's part of the lesson of learning to identify and trust our own intuition. Is this teacher a person that is actually helping to remove darkness or am I kind of blindly being led in the wrong direction, you know, quote unquote wrong direction? You know that I don't really believe that there's such a thing. (laughs) But yeah, that's what I would say is, you know, the purpose of the teacher is to help us get to that point where we can not only acknowledge and hear that inner voice within, but we've had enough experiences to know that it's not some sort of blind faith following that feeling that is in our heart, right? It's not some sort of leap that we're taking where we say, not really sure what's going to happen here. My inner guru is telling me this, but mm, don't know if I can trust it, right? We want that teacher who has walked the steps before us to make it a little bit smoother for us, right? To help us get there faster, to help point out some of the common pitfalls. And for me personally, that has been invaluable, right? To have a teacher point out where I might be missing a few things or might have a few blind spots or also might have, I speak a lot with students about arrogance, And not in the way that we might think, not that people think that they are better than they are, but oftentimes the role of a teacher is to point out that, you know what, you're actually denying your state of consciousness. You are denying your own inner guru. And nature has brought us together for me to help shake that up for you, for you to actually see and honor the guru inside. But without a teacher, sometimes we can't get there or we're kind of faking it right? Which isn't really the experience we want to have in the world. Yes, I was reflecting on this as well. There's so many quote-unquote leaders nowadays, right? There's people calling themselves shamans after two years of spiritual (laughs) practices. There are people calling themselves all sorts of things, masters. Yes, the age of the expert and the master. Exactly. Everyone's (laughs) an expert, everyone's a master, and in LA, everyone's a shaman. (laughs) (laughs) And like that type of thing where it's like, okay, well, there is so much power and so much value in owning our power and really recognizing the inner guru, like you were saying, and not being arrogant to that, because I also have learned that humility is authentic. It is not pretending we are less than. It's so that we can look humble. There is nothing humble in owning our power. However, there is this space of really, to me, it's very important. I wouldn't be who I am and where I am if it wasn't for the teachers, mentors, and shamans I am blessed to learn from. And one thing I've learned through being a student of such ancient traditions and ancient wisdom is that there is a very important place for that honoring of 
the masters and the teachers. And that doesn't mean pedestaling. That means simply creating the space for us to be the student, not always needing to be the next master and the expert and the thing. And I feel like a lot of it comes as well from a feeling of lack of safety. I was actually having this conversation with my partner a few months ago, and I can't remember exactly what I said, but I said something and it ended up like a lot of my sentences finish in saying, I just love humans. And then, <laughs> you know, it's a big one for me. And she said, like, I love the world and I love people, but I can't really understand how you love humans so much. I feel like sometimes humans are big assholes. Isn't it? <laughs> and I was like, you know, yes, I feel you. I feel you. They may behave in that way. And I see why. And I feel so much compassion and so much love. Not always. Sometimes I lose it. Sometimes I experience frustration and dislike for sure. Yeah, they're human. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but I was really reflecting on the fact that we live in a society where certain things are so, for lack of a better word, I will say pedestal. And we are being led to believe that we have to chase certain things in order to be enough, right? There is an idea of how we need to look, the things we must achieve, the things we must have. And when it comes to leadership and teachers, coaches, all of these different roles, thought leaders, there is this idea as well of an attitude we get to have, of knowing it all, having the answers, being above, knowing more than you, having achieved more than you, because otherwise, who is going to come to me for answers? Who is going to hire me? Who is going to sign up to my programs, right? So that can be very misleading because we enter this mistaken idea or this wheel of ideas where we think we must be X, Y, and Z, look like X, Y, and Z, and behave in X, Y, and Z ways in order to be perceived as a successful person or a strong leader or things like that. So what that leads to is we all just want to feel safe. We all want to feel safe. So there are so many things that will justify because of that feeling of safety. It is our main first primary need as human beings is to cover the need for safety, to feel safe, to feel like we can survive. So if we feel that we need to cover that need, we'll do a variety of things that might not be in the fullest integrity because it makes sense, which is wanting to feel safe. So I see then leaders that are teaching themselves as masters of something they barely know about. They only just started practicing or achieving. And they probably do it because subconsciously they feel as though they have to in order to be seen as successful enough, good enough, and therefore to be safe, to be recognized in the thing they really dream of doing for a living, to have enough money so they can pay their bills. And this goes to each area of their lives, right? Like there are women that do surgery so that they can feel safe to look good enough. We all do all sorts of things from buying things that have been through done and created through exploitation of the earth's resources or child labor and things like that. So many different things that we do because of that. So I was thinking about what you shared and really understanding the importance of having a true leader and a true teacher that can guide us and support us not just in tapping into our own inner power and knowledge, but firstly, to feel safe to go there. 
And I think this is huge. Yeah. And I think that one of the main things that I'm hearing in that, and my hope for the leaders and the teachers who are listening to this, is to not feel responsible for creating that safety for your students or your clients or your followers, but to encourage them and nurture them and teach them how to create that safe space for themselves. If you are the one that is creating it, then what you are doing is creating dependency, which means that you are not helping your students or the people that you're mentoring or your followers to become self-sufficient, right? And in what everything that you just shared, kind of the common thread that kept popping up for me is that all of these senses of being unsafe, the sense that we have, the fear that we feel really comes from not knowing what it is that we are. And underneath that, and if there's anyone listening who wants to hear a brilliant podcast on this, so I'd like to acknowledge my teacher, Tom Knowles, who trained me and I continue to train extensively under him and work with him. He just released a podcast on fear and fearlessness, where he talks about that all of the fears that we have really come from our mistaken ideas around body death right? In this sense of cessation of our existence. And so we feel this fear to be a certain way because what's going to happen when we die, right? If we were told that we were going to live forever, not a thousand years, not a million years, but forever, right? Nothing's going to happen to your body. You're going to live forever. Doesn't it kind of make all of the fears that you feel, they kind of dissipate, right? the sense that we have forever to do everything that we ever wanted to do. <laughs> I'll leave that podcast link in the show notes as well for those of you listening interested. And so that sense of fear, I would say, what practices are you engaged in and what knowledge are you taking in that help to verify and validate the experiences that you're having such that you are very, very clear about what it is that you are. So there isn't room for you know, and we all feel fear. We all feel fear. But I can certainly say that the fear that I used to feel prior to learning how to meditate is vastly different from the body sensations that come up from time to time now. I have such a different relationship with myself and with nature because of this twice daily experience. And as leaders, to me, that feels very important. If you are leading, if you believe that there is a message that you want to share, a practice that you want to teach, a direction that you want to lead people in, I would say without hesitation that it is your responsibility to ensure that you are on a daily basis tapping in and connecting to the source that is really the place where all of that inspiration is coming from. When we take authorship as individuals, that's where all of that kind of slimy stuff that we were referring to earlier, that's where it comes from. Because it is the teacher also wanting to feel safe, right? Financially, wanting to be validated. There's all sorts of things that come up. And so, yeah, when you talk about humility, that's a very, very important aspect to being a leader. Yes, definitely. And one thing that came up for me, and I'm going to share a couple of reflections that a couple of my clients shared with me in the last couple of weeks, 
not to promote my awesomeness, but for the sake of this conversation. Definitely promote your awesomeness, Sigrid. <laughs> that is also true. I feel I am awesome. Thanks to meditation. <laughs> <laughs> but reflecting on this in regards to the safety and what you said about it not being the job of the leader or the teacher to support their students or clients to feel safe, I had a client of mine a couple of weeks ago share with me. She said, there's a lot of leaders that when I am in their space, I want to be more like them. But what I love about you and why I chose you as my coach is that the more time I spend around you, the more I want to be like me. Mm, I love that. Yes. And I was like, oh, okay. Ringing a bell. Then I had another client last week shared. She said, you know, I've had many coaches that I have been in contact with or worked with before, and I felt as though they were providing feedback and in a way at times criticism. But with you, I feel like you are very straightforward, very full on in your feedback. (laughs) However, I feel so loved and held. I feel so safe while you share that. And I sat with that and I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Why is that? Why is it that these different people are coming back to me with this feedback that they feel safer and they feel more loved and they feel more eager to create transformation and to find themselves through being in my space and coached or mentored by me? And what I understood was it's all about the journey that I have done or walked within myself. People can feel safe without me making it my job to make them feel safe. I definitely do not go out of my way to accommodate people. But because I have that safety within, because I have made peace with so many of the things that the world, society, my inner critic has all of these voices, all of these ideas of things that were wrong about me, things that I had to hide, things that I had to be at war with because I've made peace with all of that. And there's definitely a lot more work I get to do, but I have gotten to a place where I can solidly say I love and accept myself. I feel safe to be myself enough so that people in my presence feel that safety and feel that acceptance. So I really do think that for leaders, it's so important, like you were sharing, to have a practice that brings us back to that place where we can do the inner work because the more we do that, the more transformation we'll be able to support others in having because you can go to as many coaching trainings as you want and read as many books and listen to as many podcasts. But if the work isn't done within, there is that disconnection from the inner guru or like you say, the capital S self that makes a complete disconnection between you and the people you are wanting to lead and support. Absolutely. And it feels so important. My teacher's teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and this is also a nod to the ancient lineage of Veda. You know, this is over 5,000 years old that this knowledge has been passed down. He always said that it's not what we say and it's not what we do that touches people most. It is what we are because people connect heart to heart. 
And so no matter how we package it, no matter what slogans we have, (laughs) what we are in the presence of others is the thing that really, really touches them. And that's one thing that I love about you, Sigrid, is that for as long as I have known you, you absolutely walk your talk. And so I have no doubt that every single person that you are mentoring, you are sharing years of experience. And sometimes I wish that that's what people would put forth in terms of their mastery. I'm a master of my own life. Here's everything that I've experienced. And here's the benefit you're going to receive from however many decades I've been in the trenches and I'm still in the trenches and I'm going to keep sharing with you what I'm experiencing. And that's another thing that I love about you. So for all of the leaders and coaches and teachers who are listening, who feel that pressure to be a certain way, Sigrid is so successful because she is authentic and vulnerable, right? She doesn't try to pretend that she is more or less than she is. She actually shares her unique gift of her life experience with those that she works with, and they all get to benefit from that. And so of course your clients feel safe because like you said, you've cultivated that sense of safety and security within yourself and anybody who's in your presence, you're giving them permission to unlock and do the same for them. And they might come to you and say, how do I do that? How do I do what you've done? which actually just sparked in my head that I may not have answered your question about how we live in a time where it's useful to have a teacher or a guru and also honor the guru inside. And it's actually a very simple answer. I think the sense that we have or the fear that we have of putting someone on a pedestal is even indicative of the path that we need to travel, right? So I think that in terms of having a teacher, if we can come from a place of having reverence, that doesn't take anything away from what or who I am. That doesn't take away anything from my experience to have reverence for the person in front of me, right? To be open and curious as to what it is that this person is teaching. And also to remember that there are lots of ways in which people teach. So some of my greatest gurus in my life have taught me what I don't want, right? The way in which they've behaved or the things that they've said have sparked something inside of me that has said, you know what, that's not the right direction for me. And they're still my guru, right? And saying that doesn't take anything away from me. So I think that when we have a sense of individuality that is based upon or in reference to those around us, we will always feel that power struggle. But if what we are doing is being curious and interested and fascinated in this ever-evolving experience of being human, And we can approach teachers with a sense of reverence that every person we interact with has had some sort of experience that would benefit us. Can we be humble enough and open enough to perceive what that is? And like I said, have reverence. I have the utmost reverence for my teacher and all of the teachers who have come before all of the teachers that I have and all the teachers that I ever will have. And I know that they are a huge part of this journey for me, a huge part of every day I experience more joy and more bliss and more liberation than I ever had before. And I don't put them on a pedestal and say it's because of them, but I absolutely honor their role in that. Yes, definitely. I totally resonate with that. And also want to say thank you for what you shared. I noticed there's still 
where to do for me in receiving that type of acknowledgement. I got, <laughs> I got red. I was like, okay, oh, that's enough. Let's keep talking about dating meditation. <laughs> Can I add one more thing? Okay. <laughs> so that is also the role. And now I speak as you were the first student that I ever taught Vedic meditation, right? I see in the teachers and leaders that I resonate most with and who have impacted me most with. And I see that you are this way too with those that you work with, a true guru or a very good leader or teacher will never sacrifice the teaching. Or for me, I am committed to my students' enlightenment and I will always make that the top priority. So if it means pointing something out or saying something or doing something that may cause slight temporary discomfort in aid of that person's evolution, I will never put my comfort ahead of that person's evolution. Now, I think there's always a graceful and sweet way that we can share things. I'm not by any means encouraging leaders or teachers to be nasty (laughs) and to use that as an excuse to be nasty. But it is to say that sometimes our role is to point out some things that can be very difficult or challenging for that person or for ourselves. And so on the journey of being a teacher or a leader, learning how to cultivate that, to stand strong in what it is that you are teaching or leading and always allowing that to guide you. So I'm going to keep complimenting you even if it makes you feel uncomfortable. Amazing. (laughs) Bring it on. Definitely the people pleaser gets to die. I feel like that's very important for us to be committed to really doing that. There's something else that came up for me right now as we were talking. I know that in Vedic philosophy, you speak about charm versus aversion. And I feel like nowadays, I would say more than ever, but I haven't been here like many decades ago. So right now we are experiencing such an overload of information, traumatic media, very intense occurrences happening all over the world. I perceive this as a time where the veil is being lifted and so much that we may were not aware of, we are being requested and in some ways forced to become aware of, which I personally believe it's awesome. In saying that, I know that sometimes those that identify as leaders that consider themselves to be someone that gets to show up in leadership and show up for others, whether it's in social media or in their businesses, in what for their teams, I know that there can be this inner battle between understanding what is charm speaking and what is aversion. Where am I sharing or doing the thing because I have an aversion to being seen as someone that doesn't care or being seen as someone that is (laughs) not in leadership or being seen as someone that whatever. And when am I really doing it because charm, which I guess we could also call divine guidance, but I'll let you answer that, is speaking. So can you share a little bit with us about the concept of charm and how do we tune into it? Sure. So the first thing that I will say is a little disclaimer. So when I speak about charm and aversion, this really is for someone who is engaged in a twice daily transcending technique like Vedic meditation. Because when we sit to meditate and we drop down into 
what's known as, if you want to look from a quantum physics perspective, it's the unified field. Veda talks about the absolute or that place of pure consciousness or pure bliss. This is where the signals of charm and aversion are coming from. So if we're not developing a relationship with that place within us, then even though the messages are still coming, we're probably not hearing them quite clearly. So it's sort of like if you think of a complete stranger that you haven't met or your best friend, right? If they were to say the exact same sentence to you, chances are with your best friend, you're going to pick up on body language and facial expressions and all sorts of subtle things that might make that message mean something different than if the stranger just spoke it to you, right? And so our twice daily meditation practice is the thing that allows us to develop that relationship with our inner tuition, with that source of where charm and aversion are coming from. So that's the first disclaimer. So anybody listening who might not have a daily practice like this, this will still apply to you, but the messages might come through a little bit distorted. <laughs> and it might not be until you have a daily practice where you are nurturing that relationship where the messages will start to come through clearly. So now that said, charm is the way in which nature gets us to move. Right? So from a Vedic perspective, right, there is a greater cosmic intelligence at play here. And so when I, Rachel, have a craving for ice cream, <laughs> my own individual experience of that might simply be about tasting the flavor of chocolate in my mouth. But from a cosmic perspective, maybe nature needs me to get up and go to the store to buy the ice cream because I'm going to bump into somebody. And that conversation that we're going to have is going to lead to some new project or a connection between two new people. And it actually had nothing to do with the ice cream. But charm is the way in which nature gets us to move around. So there is a sense inside or an intuition that of all of the choices that I could be making right now, of all of the things that I could be doing, there's one thing that's kind of dusted in gold. It's the one thing that feels like that's really the thing that I want to be doing. And ultimately, when we are in a space of having a clear physiology, so we don't have stress in the body distorting that message, and we're developing that relationship with nature, which is ultimately what is communicating to us, that message comes through really clearly and it ends up being the most evolutionary thing that I can do, right? It becomes the most evolutionary action in that moment. And I love when the most evolutionary action for me is to eat ice cream. I love ice cream. <laughs> and then aversion is... I would say some people describe it as the flip of charm. It's nature telling us to move away from something. But my own experience has been that it really comes into play when I haven't picked up on what nature's charming me to do. You know, nature is drawing me in a certain direction. And for whatever reason, I'm either being stubborn or I've used my intellect and I've decided that it's more rational or it's financially more viable or it's more respectful or it's more whatever, fill in the blank for me to go in another direction. It's when nature is like, hey, I'm trying to get you to go this way and you're not going this way. You're obviously not feeling charmed to move in this direction. So I'm going to put something in the path where you're headed to make you want to go away from that. So it's basically sort of like the GPS rerouting. I've taken a wrong turn and nature wants me to go in a different way and I don't seem to be picking up on that message. And so there's going to be something or someone that comes in my path 
and repels me in the direction that nature wants me to go. So this feels so important for leaders, this skill in this tool, because I would say any of your listeners and all of the people that I've heard interviewed on your podcast and anybody who considers themselves to be a sacred leader, right? There is something bigger than just what it is that my small self wants, right? My individuality, this body and my expression of nature is a localized vehicle, right? For this greater consciousness that is having so much fun in the world. And the more that I can tap into what it is that that greater consciousness is moving towards, the more it is that I am playing my role, right? A good analogy would be if we think about a pianist, we've got 10 fingers. And so we can imagine those as being individual people. And then the whole body as being that cosmic consciousness, that all-inclusive body. And I'm trying to play a piece on the piano and my left pinky decides to go on strike because my left pinky wants to be doing something else. Right? This is the feeling of, of nature when we are not in tune with what it is that we're doing here, right? Or what some people would call dharma, right? That's a Sanskrit word for what's the most evolutionary thing? What's my role in this greater play that's happening here? And it's much more enjoyable both for the listeners and for the whole body and even for the pinkies, <laughs> If we know our role, right? What keys am I meant to press and at what pressure and how often? And it's a much more enjoyable experience. And we really get to be the full expression of ourselves. And that sense that your client had of being around you makes me want to be more me, right? That is what charm and aversion are helping us do. It's helping us uncover the path that is most me. And that's what Vedic meditation helps us do, is uncover the expression of ourselves that is most us, right? It's not what our family tells us. It's not what our lover tells us. It's not what our school tells us or our politicians or society at large, right? It's especially about, not what the politicians. Yes, especially not what the politicians are saying. But it's about stripping back all of that indoctrination and uncovering what truly is an innocent being that wants to experience love, right? Like at the end of the day, is that not what all of this is about? If I get more money, then that person will love me. If I'm skinnier, then that person will love me. If I get that job or I'm on that podcast or I learn this technique or whatever it is, then maybe people will love me. And that sense of safety, I reckon, is around feeling unloved, right? Unloved, unseen. All you need is love. (laughs) (laughs) And so... For leaders to have a practice that is allowing you to uncover that innermost source of love such that we can be in a state of fulfillment and have a beautiful relationship with nature and be able to hear those clear messages of where to move and when and what to say and who to interact with. And then we get to go out and share our inner love. 
We get to share our love with our clients and our students and our family and our friends. And what safer place to be, to not be dependent on a person or a thing or an object or a situation outside of ourselves to bring us that feeling, but to actually be that feeling and then bring it out into the world, right? That is the safest, most dharmic, (laughs) most liberated place to be. And whatever it is that brings you there, do that thing, prioritize that thing, be disciplined, right? To be a disciple is to be disciplined. And so whatever it is that you are a disciple of, whether it's coming from internally and you are an autodidact, you're someone who's teaching yourself, or you have a teacher or many teachers, devote time every day to that discipline. You deserve that and the world deserves that. And what a different world we would be living in if we were interacting in a space of giving instead of taking, hey? Mm-hmm. Yes, such a huge thing. And personally, I think that's the most important thing we can do as leaders, not just so that we can lead others, but so that we can be in full, like we were saying at the beginning of this episode, accountability. That to me, it's also self-responsibility. It's looking at what am I contributing to this world with my energy, with my thoughts, with my actions? Am I contributing to the collective consciousness being upgraded and to the potential, something that I pray for every day, illumination and liberation from suffering for all beings? Or am I contributing to the opposite by not removing the layers of conditioning that are keeping me stuck in the perpetuation of that suffering for myself and therefore others? Because if I am a vibrational match for that suffering, I am contributing to it. So it's so important that us leaders do that work. Yes. And we're always contributing. One way or the other, we are always contributing. And so I would say, what a relief, right? To lean on that big S self and to not have it be all having to come from me, that pressure of always having to know what to do. But actually, if I can open myself up to be that vessel, to be that conduit, of what it is that's coming through so that instead of being the person who sees everybody down in a hole and saying, oh, that sucks, let me climb down there with you and we can all commiserate, we can have more people up top saying, let me throw down a ladder, let me throw down a rope, let me help you climb out of there and let's work together to co-create a different kind of life where there isn't so much suffering and let's not champion each other's suffering, right? Let's not encourage the suffering. Yes. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much, love. Thank you for all of your answers. And there's two more questions I want to ask you. Mm, Sure. The first being, where can people find you and in what ways can people work with you? Yeah. So the best way to find me right now is to hop onto my website. It's www.rachelgross.love. I'll leave the link in the show notes. Okay, great. Thanks. And on there, it's a temporary site right now just so that people can find me because up until coronavirus, I was traveling quite a bit and people kind of never knew where I was. (laughs) So now on that site, you'll know where I am and what I'm offering. You'll also find my email address, my WhatsApp number, and my mobile number. So you can absolutely (laughs) reach me in lots of ways. And for as long as we are kind of social distancing. I have put 
courses on hold because as you know, it's always taught in person. And on the first day we do that beautiful gratitude ceremony and I would never want anyone to miss out on that experience. And the mantra is always given in person. So right now courses are on hold, but that doesn't mean that we can't connect. So for people who haven't learned how to meditate yet, We can hop on the phone or video and we can have a chat about the practice and if it's right for you. And I also do mentoring. So mostly mentoring for students who've learned Vedic meditation because it all comes through the Vedic worldview. It has a Vedic lens. But even for people who haven't learned how to meditate yet, it is something that we could start. And then for those listening who are already Vedic meditators, there is a weekly group meditation, a weekly round, which is like an advanced technique that's added on to meditation. Both of those are done online. And I am also doing mentoring with students. So recently, what I found myself diving into is a lot of the Vedic mythos. So the stories that have been passed down for thousands of years and all of the lessons, both microcosmic and macrocosmic, that are bound up in those epic tales. And so if that's something that you're interested in, definitely get in touch. Awesome. I'll leave all of the links in the show notes for you guys listening. And the last question I want to ask you is, in your opinion, what makes leadership sacred? Oh, wow. There's so many things. I can only say one. <laughs> Yep. I would say the thing that makes leadership sacred is humble pride. To remain humble in your place in this world and to remain humble in always being open to grow and evolve and also to be very proud of the journey that you've had so far and to be very proud of the knowledge and mastery that you've gained. So balancing those two things and always offering that to those that you are working with. Mm, love that. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. Thank you for every other answer. Thank you for teaching me to meditate <laughs> in this way and for the knowledge that you share with others, for your work, for your love, for your light. Thank you for being in the podcast. I'm so excited to be sharing this conversation mm. with <laughs> my listeners. So yeah, thanks. Absolutely. It's been such a joy to witness your continued journey and it warms my heart and I feel so much pride as I watch from afar at the change that you are affecting because you've heard me say it a million times, but knowledge is for action and you are an absolute exemplar of that and I applaud you. So thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And to everyone listening, thank you so much as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you loved it, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I truly appreciate your support and contribution so that more conscious leaders can get access to this content. And speaking of content, if we haven't connected on Instagram yet, that's actually where I hang out most of the time and where I share the most content. So if you'd like to have access to daily free high value content, make sure to follow my account at Sigrid Tassius. And of course, I will continue to pop by here for our weekly episode of Sacred Leadership. Thank you once again for taking the time of your day to listen to this episode. And I hope it provided you with a lot of value. Much love.